start addressing definitive care. That's all we're going to talk about here. And <clears throat> when I start with this, what's the, what's the thing that co most commonly kills you after injury? Car hits the tree, what are you most likely to die from? So people usually think it's hemorrhage. Hemorrhage is actually not the leading cause of death following injury. That's the leading cause of potentially preventable death, which is obviously a huge focus. The leading cause of death is actually going to be traumatic brain injury. Um, second leading cause of death is going to be hemorrhagic shock. And then third, or hemorrhage, third is, it's a good thing, but it also means that the, the demographics of the disease is changing. So when we talk about what do you die from, I think there's a nice sequential way we can talk about it that I'll go through in a little bit of a fashion, which is kind of how ATLS teaches it. Do you guys, as non the non-trauma people in the room, non-surgeons in the room, do you guys take ATLS? Some of you? Emergency medicine people obviously do, but not the, not the pulmonary people. But, every, hmm? but, but a lot of the, the philosophy of it is really all about this concept of what's rule out what's going to kill you in the next 20 minutes, what's potentially reversible things that I can tr immediately identify and treat, and then get somebody to definitive care. And this is the kind of, so ATLS is, you know, it's got its flaws. It's certainly not, not going to be the end all and be all for every patient. But the way we walk through it is this very simple algorithm of A, B, C, D, E. Now, what I'll tell you, interestingly, right, A being airway. So I was sitting in the TRU one day. And for those of you who may remember Andy Burgess, he was an orthopedic attending here. He has a textbook that's called, it's like pelvic and acetabular fractures. And it was sitting in the TRU when the ortho residents left it. So I was like flipping through it. And it's the first chapter, right? It's the resuscitation of the trauma patients, the first chapter of any, right? And they had the ABCs, airway bleeding, central nervous system. And I was like, really? You really can't even get the freaking algorithm, right? The acronym, right? So airway bleeding, air, I'm sorry, airway breathing, uh, circulation, disability, exposure. I'm going to walk through it in the sequential way because I think it's a nice way to keep yourself organized. And when you are by yourself in the middle of, for those of you who've never had the opportunity to work in a resource-poor environment or be the only doctor in a building, really important learning experience. Um, to kind of think about this in a sequential way. But before I do that, I do want to talk a little bit about some changes in philosophy, right? We always talk about airway first, airway first, airway first. Well, we all know in CPR, that's completely gone away when somebody has a cardiac arrest, right? We don't even do, we don't even worry about the airway anymore. We just do high quality CPR, right? Whether it's in hospital or out of hospital cardiac arrest. There's a growing interest in adjusting this algorithm for trauma to CAB or circulation, then airway, then bleeding. And the reason being that the hemorrhage stuff, the circulatory stuff that kills you, kills you faster, kills you before you can secure the airway, make sure they don't have a pneumothorax and get to their bleeding problem. Does that make sense? Putting a tourniquet on somebody, putting direct pressure on somebody is much, much quicker than intubating somebody and securing their airway. So in patients who have suspicion of hemorrhage, the military's big on this. They've kind of we've migrated away from this ABCD concept to a CAB, circulation first, hemorrhage control first. And I'll come back to that, okay? But I just want to put that out there that, that we now have changed the way we think about patients who, are, who we have suspicion of hemorrhage. Now, you don't know why patients are hypotensive, though, right? You have, you have to make some assumptions about why your patient has low blood pressure. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So what are the airway things that will kill you if you don't immediately address them. What types of airway problems do we see in trauma? Hmm? Tension. So most of us would put that actually somewhere between B and C. And I'll come back to why attention pneumothorax kills you because it's actually not the reason most people think why attention pneumothorax kills you. What airway problems? Oh my God. <laughs> hmm? Okay, so, so who's apneic after injury? This is actually another complete misconception. 
who's apneic after injury? Patients that are either already dead or patients high cervical spinal cord injury, right? Devastating brain, right? There's a reason the apnea test is the last thing you do before you declare somebody dead, right? Even patients with the worst brain injuries are almost never apneic, unless they happen to have an isolated brainstem injury. But high spinal cord injury, right? Why did Christopher Reeves survive? Everybody remembers Christopher Reeves, C2 complete, right? He was intubated by an anesthesiologist who was watching the horse show. Patients with high cervical spinal cord injury will invariably suffer a cardiac arrest in the field, a respiratory arrest in the field because they have no diaphragmatic function. That is, that is true. What other patients do you worry about their airway? So bad facial injuries, right? Anybody who's got you know, teeth, blood, vomit, right? Obstructing their airway, who else? Do we worry about airway problems? Airway injury, right? We had a guy, I guess probably a couple years ago now, who was riding his ATV on the trail and there was a cable going across the trail, clotheslined him, transected his trachea, probably pretty important to secure that guy's airway before you move on to other things, right? So airway injury. And then the other huge patient population of who do we secure the airway in is patients who are unable to protect their airway. What does that mean? those patients with a depressed level of consciousness, loss of oropharyngeal reflexes that allows you and I to protect our airway, meaning maintain a patent airway at all times, and classically associated with brain injury. But there are two other patient populations, two other, uh, when somebody comes in obtunded, there are, there are many reasons after injury. What are the kind of the top three that you should be thinking about? Brain injury, hypoxia, or hypercarbia and shock. Some of the most obtunded patients you'll ever see are patients who come in in hemorrhagic shock. So there's a reason for the 3-FU rule also. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Right, why do we intubate patients in the trauma bay? Right, so either they're hypoxic, they're hypercarbic, right, which is somewhere in between these two. They, we don't think they're protecting their airway. They have blood, vomit, teeth, bone in their mouth. Right? We're worried that they're really badly brain injured and have lost their oropharyngeal reflexes or they're just being an asshole. Right? That's a 3FU rule. Um, why do we intubate patients who are agitation, altered mental status, altered sensorium is a, is a, can often be intoxication and probably most commonly is. But brain injury, hypoxia, and hypotension from hypoperfusion from hemorrhage. So those are the people that we talk about with securing their airway. What other airway emergencies did I miss? I think I got most of them. Did I miss any? Okay, burns are kind of an interesting one, and I, I, I'm not a burn person. I, I hate burns. Has anybody ever taken care of a really bad burn patient? I hate the way they smell. It's horrible. It, it's horrible. But, but it's a very, very fair point, right? Somebody comes in who has been had exposure to significant burn, not only thermal burn, but more commonly is going to be um, exposure to any kind of. Um, inhalation injury, sit around the nose and mouth, worry about increasing edema. Those patients have an airway secured pretty quickly as well. So what about this concept of a patient comes in in shock and securing their airway though? And I may bug, I may bug J Justin a little bit to comment on this, right? We take a patient who comes in, they are lethargic, they are diaphoretic, they look like crap, they're bleeding or they're brain injured or something bad is going on. So we wanna secure their airway because we're really worried they won't be able to protect their airway for very long. So what's, what do we do? We RSI them with drugs that take away their catecholamine surge, and what happens, particularly in those patients who are in hemorrhagic shock, they arrest. So many people, and I, Justin, if you don't let me put you on the spot, because I am curious, curious philosophically, 
and the, our pre-hospital providers have certainly kind of glommed onto this of not using an agent that takes away the catecholamine surge, but rather using an agent like ketamine, which maintains catecholamines and maintains perfusion. So just the yeah. So I yeah, it goes back to the CAB, and I think that um, does everybody hear what what Dr. Richards said? That ketamine probably is the right drug to use for somebody who, who comes in in shock. There's a, a historical. If you would tell me five years ago you want to use ketamine in a patient with brain injury, I'd be like, oh, you criminal, right? Why? Because right, ketamine increases intracranial pressure. It does. That is true. But there are lots of data, particularly from the neuroanesthesia literature, that is, that is markedly offset by the increase in cerebral perfusion pressure that you get in association with using ketamine. So it's okay to use ketamine. I won't yell at you. Especially won't yell at you from San Francisco. All right. So those are most of the airway things that are going to kill you, right? These are the patients that we, when it's our first priority when they roll in the door, they're not protecting their airway. Their airway itself is compromised either by foreign bodies, by the, by airway injury. They have a high spinal cord injury and therefore they are apneic. And if you do not provide ventilation for them, they will arrest. Um, those are patients where we can't move, we can't move beyond A. And even though the Dr. Richard's point about resuscitation ongoing while we secure somebody's airway, when you're out by yourself in the middle of nowhere, you have to pick your poison, right? You can't do everything at the same time. Here at the world famous Arlen's Cali Shock Trauma Center, right? You can get everything at the same time. Trust me, like I said, if you've never had an opportunity to spend time in a dock in the box by yourself and they bring in some kid who just got smashed by a car, it's a very enlightening experience of how you have to do this and how you have to organize your resources. So being sequential in your thought process is helpful. All right, what are the B things that kill you? This is pretty easy. All right, hypoxia and hypercarbia. And what causes hypoxia? Pneumothorax, pulmonary contusions, aspiration, right? Anything that injures your lung or affects your lung will cause you to be hypoxic. Hmm? Yeah, the PE. <laughs> That's just the incidental finding we see on our CT scans that we do on everybody now. But, right, those are the things that will kill you from a B point of view. And then, again, going back to spinal cord injury, Right? Why do patients with spinal cord injury, even if their diaphragm is working, why do they have hypoventilatory dysfunction and hypoxia? One of my other favorite topics to talk about. Everybody take a deep breath. What do you feel when you take a deep breath? What do you feel when you take a deep breath? You feel that chest rise, right? That bucket handle action of your chest wall. It's not your diaphragm. Diaphragm's quiet breathing, right? So patients who have a, sp a spinal cord injury, even if their diaphragm, even if their phrenic nerve is functioning, will develop hypoventilatory dysfunction and typically hypoxia very early on. And you'll start seeing them. It's a very stereotypical pattern. It's, it, people call it belly breathing. It's not belly breathing. It actually has a specific connotation. It's quad breathing. And it's when their diaphragm descends because they don't maintain that bucket of handle action of their chest wall or that quiet abdominal contraction that you get. They, their chest caves in and their abdomen pops out with each respiration as their diaphragm descends. And you'll see it developing over a period of days, of a period of minutes to hours following injury. Intubate that patient sooner rather than later. Who's been called to do an emergent intubation MRI? Guess what's not MRI compatible? Orangoscopes. Do they make MRI compatible orangoscopes? I don't think I've ever seen one. But it's super not fun, right? And what does every patient with a spinal cord injury need because they call neurosurgery? MRI, right? We know that. Right. So, all right. Tension pneumothorax, somebody mentioned, which I want to talk about. Why does tension pneumothorax kill you? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. You always talk about it being the hypoxia from I can take out your lung right now. You won't die. Well, if I offer your right heart, well, I'll put you on ECMO for a while. Right, but I mean, you don't need both lungs to oxygenate and ventilate. Right, there's a right heart issue if I truly do a pneumonectomy, acutely do a pneumonectomy. But, right, it's not a hypoxia issue, which is what most people think of. It's actually a shifting of the mediastinum issue and a marked decrease in preload, which is why simply decompressing the chest is effective. Um, we talk about, obviously, needle decompression. The new thought to needle decompress is, yep, it's actually fourth intercostal space, anterior axillary line. ATLS recently changed in adults, not children, not pediatrics. Pediatrics is still, they've maintained second intercostal space. But in adults, it's now fourth intercostal space, anterior axillary line. And that will relieve the tension physiology. You still need to treat the pneumothorax, but it will relieve their tension, their tension physiology, which is why I put it kind of between B and C. Right, it's it's classically considered a, a breathing thing, but it really causes a circulatory problem. All right, what did I miss with respect to B? Anything? What other B things kill you? That it, right? All right, let's talk about the by far, well, not by far the most interesting. The second most interesting. We all know that the disability TGI portion is the most interesting. All right, so we talk about things that kill you that are circulatory problems that kill you. It's kind of divided up into well, there's Bleeding, 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 and tamponade. Right. So I'll very briefly, tamponade, this is where you guys um, very well may get called. You're the intensivist on call, and they have a patient who got stabbed to the chest, and the patient clearly on ultrasound has a large pericardial effusion and is bradycardic and hypotensive and about to arrest. What should I do? What do I do? What do you do? And you're not, you do not have a surgeon readily available. This is the age old question, right? And I, will, I don't know what the EM literature is saying these days about what do you do as an EM physician in that situation? Do you open the chest or not? I don't know. Where are you open the chest? If you don't have a surgeon around, right? Right? But what can you do? All right, this is really important. And, and I will tell you, Blunt cardiac rupture causing tamponade is, I have seen it, I've been doing this 17 years now, I've seen it about five times. So about every other year here at the world famous Arab College Dr. Thomas Center, right? We see it about once every other year. It's just an unbelievably rare event. And, you, and most of the patients are already in the rest when they get here. But penetrating precordial injury causes tamponade all the time. So you as a non-surgeon, right? As a surgeon, open the chest, right? Fix the heart. We all get that. As a non-surgeon, what are your options? Because this is really important. You absolutely unequivocally will save somebody's life with this. Perfect. Perfect. Yep. And we have had, in the time that I've been here, at least three or four survivors. Outside hospital, somebody presented there with tamponade from, from a cardiac injury. The ER doc did exactly what you just said, put a catheter in the pericardium. And every time the patient went Brady down below, 56, I don't know, whatever they picked, they would drain off 50 cc's, right? Because why does tamponade kill you? It's not a hemorrhage problem, right? It's again, it's a preload or it's a cardiac function problem. So very good, right? Which is why patients obviously have massive effusions that develop over time have, can have huge pericardial effusions. All right, so that's tamponade. That's the easy one. Bleeding. Bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. It's why we have, we have jobs. When we talk about bleeding, we talk about compressible hemorrhage and non-compressible hemorrhage. And then I'm going to talk about how we resuscitate patients who are bleeding, which will apply to your patients, your 
products, it will apply to your GI bleeders, it will apply to everybody, but how what the modern 2019 way to resuscitate somebody who is bleeding is. All right, compressible hemorrhage, classically described as that's gonna be extremity or junctional. Everybody here has taken stop the bleed? Yes. Can you take stop the bleed, Dan? Damn, get your t-shirt. Um, if anybody has not had the opportunity to take a stop, has everybody heard of Stop the Bleed at least? So it's a American College of Surgeons and the White House when Obama was there, um, got teamed up together and decided that bleeding control was a national public health priority. Um, it is not just about school shootings. It is about workplace incidents. It's about your dad's out gardening in the garden and the chainsaw slips. It's about all of those things. It's about acute bleeding control. It really focuses on compressible hemorrhage. Fair bit of data that's looked gone into, if you go out and look at some of the um, mass shooting events, how many of those patients died from compressible hemorrhage that didn't need to? It's not, a, it's not a, a huge number, but it's not zero. So compressible hemorrhage, first-line therapy for compressible hemorrhage, meaning, again, extremity or what we call junctional first-line therapy, direct pressure, right? Works really, really well, but it takes somebody standing there and holding direct pressure. So it's a resource issue, most commonly. Um, Second line therapy is going to be wound packing. If you happen to have combat gauze available to you, great. I think that's a little bit silly to say, expect everybody to have combat gauze available. There are now t-shirts, everybody's seen them, the Gap is selling them, this t-shirt can save your life. Basically telling people, take your t-shirt off and stuff it in the wound and hold pressure. And they're, they're not impregnated with combat gauze, but they, but I mean, it's true, right? You just need to, direct pressure packing works really, really, really well. And then when you either don't have the resource, the personnel to do that, then your next line therapy is gonna to be tourniquet. I personally, this is my opinion, please do not tell the American College of Surgeons I said this, I think we are teaching people the wrong thing. We've gotten into bed. We're taking this off of what the TCCC, which is our combat casualty colleagues about tourniquets, but they really feel very strong that we should be using commercially available tourniquets and not homemade tourniquets, and there's data and there's reasons behind that. The problem is, how many of you have a tourniquet available to you? So I think to not also teach people to use improvised tourniquets correctly is probably, you could, you could think about doing it a different way. Um, so, but, but currently the teaching is the commercially available tourniquets and you will see stop the bleed kits. Um, we have them here in the hospital. They're next to all the AEDs. We are working on um, the airports. We are working on M&T Bank Stadium, Camden Yards, that type of thing. Some states have adopted. Um, uh, Massachusetts has been very successful, and uh, not Chicago. One other major city where they now have it in all their public schools and all their public spaces, and it's now mandated by state legislature, just like AEDs are in public places, to have stop the kits if something were to happen. So. You haven't had an opportunity to take the course and then teach the course and kind of the idea is to teach the lay person to be able to do this successfully. We've taught Girl Scouts, we've taught kindergartners. It's pretty impressive actually. Anyway, so that's compressible hemorrhage, right? It's actually pretty easy to deal with, right? Put a hand on it, put a tourniquet on it, great, fine. What's much more interesting and why I have a job as a general rule is this kind of non-compressible hemorrhage. And what do we do about that? And that's gonna be hemorrhage into your torso, class of your chest, retroperitoneum, abdomen, Right, that you can't squeeze. All right, what are we gonna do about that? Somebody comes in and has suspicion of non-compressible torso hemorrhage and they're in hemorrhagic shock. What are our options? Eight years ago, what did we do? Somebody's about to die from hemorrhage and they're bleeding into their chest or abdomen. 
right? We opened their chest, we crossed them their aorta, we did open cardiac massage. If it was in their chest, we tried to put a clamp on what was bleeding. If not, we tried to get into the operating room. The results of opening somebody's chest for abdominal hemorrhage, are you aware of any data? Dr. Feliciano series, 0% survival. Excellent, can't do worse than that. So what do we have now? It's in my con. I don't know what happens when I move this to UCSF. Whether my contract will still say I have to talk about Rebola at every talk. Just kidding. But it is a conceptually really interesting concept, right? Because why do we open people's chests for non-compressible torso hemorrhage? Well, if we're, if we're suspicious that they're bleeding in their chest, we all get that, right? That's hemorrhage control. But if we have suspicions they're bleeding below their chest, meaning below their diaphragm, in their abdomen, or and/or pelvis, which is by far more common, what's the rationale behind opening the chest? Why do we open the chest? One of three to do three things. So cross clamp the aorta to provide inflow control. One of the major principles of vascular injury or vascular surgery is inflow control, inflow not flow control. It also improves afterload to the vital organs, meaning the brain and the heart. Why else do we open the chest? So hemorrhage control, aortic occlusion, and open cardiac massage. All right, well, if they're not bleeding in their chest, we don't have suspicion of bleeding in their chest because they're shot here to here. Right, or they have a positive fast and a negative chest X-ray, right? Positive abdominal fast. So I, so I'm not worried that they're bleeding in their chest. Everybody agrees that somebody who's bleeding to death in their chest, opening their chest is the right thing to do. So we'll take that away. So now it's open cardiac massage and aortic occlusion. Well, now I have a way I can do aortic occlusion without having to open their chest. For the surgeons in the room, I know you guys have all seen this, but I would imagine you guys have probably seen patients where we open the chest, we fix their injuries, and they bleed to death in the chest incision, that second huge massive trauma I gave them in the, in the TRU bay. I can't, I can't tell you the number of patients I've, I've watched bleed to death from the additional trauma we inflicted on them. So if I, there's a better way to do it without opening their chest, I would suggest try it. But again, the patients not patients who have hemorrhage in their chest. Aortic occlusion with a reboa. Talk about zone one and zone three. Everybody's familiar with it. Yes, do I need to go into it at all? Happy to if you would like me to. Briefly, okay. I'll come back to that in one second. And then this concept of open cardiac massage. Well, is there any data that would tell you open cardiac massage is better than high quality closed chest CPR? No, and in fact, we actually published some data from here looking at NPLCO2 that closed chest CPR was just as good. So you can certainly make an argument in 2019, you have a Reboa available to you, for a patient who comes in with non-compressible torso hemorrhage below their diaphragm, opening their chest probably doesn't make a ton of sense. Does that make sense to everybody? Now that, that, no, that's high quality closed chest CPR, right? What's the problem with doing high quality closed chest CPR in a trauma bay? You're in my way, knives are flying, right? Plus, you could also make an argument, Scott Weingarten and I have debated this on numerous occasions, the benefit of doing CPR in a patient who's exsanguinated. Well, the argument I will make is there's probably some blood volume. They probably have not completely exsanguinated, so circulating whatever is there may be good. Number two, you don't know why they've actually arrested. But you, there's actually, has a dog study? There's a dog study where they took a bunch of dogs and they exsanguinated them. And one set of dogs they gave fluid alone, another set they gave fluid plus CPR and one another CPR alone. And by the fluid alone and the fluid and CPR group did just as well. So you could certainly make an argument in the setting somebody who's exsanguinated CPR in and of itself is unnecessary. The problem is you all feel stupid saying they're doing nothing. Right? Or just putting in lines and giving a bunch of blood and waiting to see if their heart comes back. So it makes us all feel good that we do CPR. Plus, it gets the medical students really excited. It gives them something to do. 
But please be careful when you do that. Right? Don't ever risk getting injured. So let's talk a little bit about Reboa. So we talked about Reboa. Reboa is obviously placed, placed through a femoral line. Lots and lots of issues about whether you cut down, are you percutaneous? It depends on who you are and how comfortable you feel accessing the femoral artery. But you basically access the femoral artery just like you would if you're putting an A-line in or if you're doing an open cut down. And the current catheters that we have, I promise, I actually should say, disclosure, I actually was part of a funded study that was funded by the company. I am no longer, but in the interest of full disclosure, I will give you my my uh, my, my official disclosure of my financial in, in, uh, interest. I have no financial interest in the company. There is one catheter that's, that's currently commercially available. It's the ER Reboa catheter. There are other devices you can use. What we used to use is what the, the vascular surgeons use for aortic occlusion, for AAAs, and that was, that was a coda balloon. Again, we just happen to have this commercially available device that does not require a wire. So you just put the device straight up. Um, and we talk about zone one occlusion, which is going to be right at your diaphragmatic hiatus. And that's going to provide inflow occlusion to your viscera, right, everything below the diaphragm. And then we talk about zone three occlusion, which is at the aortic bifurcation to provide inflow control to pelvis and lower extremities. I will tell you, again, this is my opinion. I think that we have, the pendulum will always swing. Um, my personal bias is when you put up a balloon in zone one, and, my, and the surgical fellows have heard me say this on many, many, many occasions, York, the clock starts ticking. And if you think for one second that that balloon can stay up for one second more, the patients who are in shock that you do, that you do aortic occlusion and cut off blood flow to their liver, their kidneys, their bowel, their soft tissues, and then you release that balloon 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour later, I would suggest to you the longer that is, the less survivable a process that is. Does that make sense? The same thing is true with an aortic cross clamp. I'm not saying it's any better with an aortic cross clamp, but I will tell you, I would never, five years ago, have sent a patient a CT scan with an aortic cross with a Satinsky sitting out of their chest. And we are sending patients a CT scan with a zone one of rubella in place. So I, I, th I, I urge you caution, particularly for the emergency medicine people in the room or for the, the um, critical care folks in the room who get called down to the ED to come and help with these patients. The second you put that balloon up, the clock starts ticking. And if you do not have a plan to get that balloon down, your patient is dead. It doesn't matter what else you do. So it, it leads to a lot of, and I'm sure many of you have been involved in some of the online discussions or even in-person discussions about who should be putting them in. Is it okay for EM physicians to put it in? It's the same issue about opening the chest, right? You can physically, the, the technique of opening the chest is fine, right? You all know how to do that. But what do you do with the hole in the heart? If you don't know how to fix that, why open the chest? I will suggest to you that Reboa, at least in 2019, may be partly the same thing. Now, what's really interesting about that, though, is that in a lot of interest in this is, everybody's heard of permissive hypotension, right? Damage control resuscitation. Typically, we talk about three parts of it. It's minimal, minimal, minimizing crystalloid. It's that concept of one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio. And it's this concept of hypotensive resuscitation, meaning if somebody is bleeding, why jack their blood pressure up to 180? Let their blood pressure be 70. Let their blood pressure be 80. These are typically young, healthy people. They will tolerate that just fine. The higher you make their blood pressure, the more they're going to bleed, right? Let their blood pressure be low. Let them. I'll tell you, I can't tell you the number of people that cut stuff off when their blood pressure is low, right? What does the military use? What do they titrate their, their fluid to? Radial pulse and a mental status. The patient is mentating and has a palpable radial pulse. They do not attempt to raise that blood pressure any farther than that. 
What's the right blood pressure in a civilian? Who knows? 80, 70, right? Probably depends a lot on the patient and typically not in patients who have concomitant brain injury. Constant I'll come back to. We're doing on time, by the way. We have to one, right? I'm not gonna sh don't, don't think for one second TBI is not getting it set, right? I'm just letting you know. Yes, Daniel. Please. Well? Okay, fair enough, yep. Certain, certain, yep. Very fair point, but I would tell you that most trauma patients, which is why it's very interesting as we get, as our patients get older and we have more geriatric patients, most trauma patients, I've had people, they've had maps of 40 for hours and they're fine because they're 20 years old and you can do anything to them. I think that, I think as, as the population gets older and this is where, you know, we're now putting Reboa's in 82 year olds, when the Dan Hers of the world are getting hit by cars, we're all in trouble. Well, give me blood pressure. Hi, Dan. Don't worry about it. That's <laughs> but no, point, point is well taken, though. I mean, and I think one of the things that we, we feel in all of this that I'm saying, I'm talking about the generic, the generic trauma patient, right? I'm not necessarily talking about, and we are absolutely, I had a, we had a 92-year-old come in to the TRU who fell off a ladder while she had a chainsaw because her crepe myrtle needed to be trimmed. Her blood alcohol was 240. And I was like, go, grandma, go, right? Do me a favor, don't get back on the ladder with a chainsaw. But I mean, but we're seeing, this is, this is a real phenomenon, right? Motorcyclists, 90-year-old motorcyclists are not uncommon anymore. And so I think the point's well taken, Dan. The young, healthy person tolerates this all very well. The older you are, the less healthy you are, the less well you will tolerate any of this. That is 100% true. But back to this concept of hypotensive resuscitation in the setting of hemorrhage. So how does this relate to Reboa? So there's this concept of, can you provide hypotensive resuscitation below your level of occlusion? So you're not completely occluded. You're still maintaining some perfusion to your kidneys, your liver, your GI tract, right, with a map of 40 or 50, but maintaining a higher blood pressure for your brain and your heart. So a lot of interest in this concept, what we call partial occlusion, where the balloon is only partly inflated, right? It's like having a clamp on one click instead of all five clicks. The problem with doing it is it sounds much better in practice than it actually works. And it's a function of how the balloons inflate and deflate. It's, it's, a, it's a physics thing that Dr. Morrison can explain to you much better than I can. They're in the process of now changing the way the balloons are designed because currently the balloons, they're, um, they're kind of, uh, not rectangular, but they're oblong and they deflate this way not this way. Does that make sense? So from a partial occlusion, that's just the way that they function. So from a partial occlusion point of view, you can take some some fluid out of the balloon, but it doesn't necessarily provide less occlusion. Does that make sense? As opposed to if it deflated this way and allowed some blood to go by it. I have no idea if those hands helped at all, but whatever. <laughs> um, okay, so Reboa is one way. And then what do we do about somebody who's bleeding to death in their abdomen? Well, it's really all about resuscitation and definitive hemostasis. I'm not going to go into techniques of definitive hemostasis, but obviously your options are surgical or endovascular as a general rule in 2019. And we definitely are seeing the pendulum swing way more over to more minimally invasive techniques for hemorrhage control. I'll just say that as a background statement. Um, but how we resuscitate the patient's bleeding, and this is what absolutely 100% applies to you guys who see patients with GI bleeds or 
um, postpartum hemorrhage is the other one, where these principles here are pretty firmly ingrained in the resuscitation literature now. And many of you are very familiar with these, the one being the damage, the, um, the hypotensive resuscitation, right? We don't need a blood pressure of 180, right? A blood pressure of 90. Dan, will you agree with 90? Dan will take 90, even in, you'll, you'll be okay with 90? Um, but, you know, is 70 okay for a 20-year-old? Probably not okay for an 80-year-old, right? But then these other two elements are this concept of crystalloid. Uh, Mike, you're old enough, you remember. What did we do when we were interns? Your job was literally to go to the storeroom and pull the cartons of crystalloid. I'm not kidding you. Cartons of crystalloid into the patient's room. The patient with pancreatitis and burns and multi-trauma and sepsis and, oh, my God, liters and liters and liters of crystalloid. And what did we find out about that? particularly for patients who were sick from hemorrhage. Well, every single outcome measure that has been looked at has been demonstrated to be worse for every cc of crystalloid you give somebody. Why? What's wrong with crystalloid? It's room temperature, so it does nothing to help keep them warm, which we know warmth is very important when we talk about the coagulation system. It's dilutional, so Rick Dutton, for those of you who remember Rick, one of my favorite Rick Dutton quotes, he was our former chief of anesthesia here for years, and his fa my favorite quote of his was, any fluid which does not clot or carry oxygen should be suspect. And, you know, it's just, it, 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 physiologically, it doesn't even make any sense, right? Um, so it's cold, it dilutes out your clotting factors, it doesn't carry oxygen, it does almost nothing. Now, the argument you'll make, and this is a discussion I've had with uh, Carlos Rodriguez, who many of you know, is one of our uh, now, now re newly retired from the military, what happens if you're an IDMT in the desert in Afghanistan, though, and somebody's in hemorrhagic shock and has a blood pressure of 70, now 60, now 50, and all you have available to you is crystalloid? Is crystalloid better than death? Probably. What about giving a little amp of phenylephrine, a la my anesthesia colleagues? Give a little phenylephrine push there. They do it behind the drape all the time. The surgeons in the room, if you don't know about it, they do it all the time which is better. And so kind of it's an interest in the military and the pre-hospital environment in the military, assuming we can't give blood, which we're starting to do, is would they be better off giving a little push of Neo to give a little more squeeze or some crystalloid? Then that's what you have available to you. Does that make sense? So a very unanswered question right now. And the, the, you know, the, the argument I would make against the phenylephrine is these patients already are maximally vasoconstricted. Are you really going to get a lot more bang for your buck? I don't know, Justin, do you have any comments on that or thoughts? Yep. And, and there's certainly a huge interest in pre-hospital blood now for all sorts of conditions, not just hemorrhage. Um, and uh, actually some data that talks about pre-hospital blood and improved survival in patients with um, hemorrhagic shock, but also in uh, pre-hospital plasma in patients with traumatic brain injury, interestingly enough. All right. Did I cover most of, most of C? All right. Now we'll get to the interesting one. Yeah, please. Yeah. So, um, yes, there is data on this, and the data that Dr. Brunner will quote to you is up to an hour. I will tell you, I have personally never had a survivor over 20 minutes. Ron? Yeah, please. 
Yeah, yeah super fusion. I mean, you, they just get this map. I mean, they they get this. Same. So so one of yeah. So we we have this whole we we talk about in the operating room a lot. Who's on the balloon? Right, and we actually make it somebody's job to do balloon management in the OR. So if we know it's going to take us a while because whatever's bleeding is just going to take a lot of fixes, not just putting the spleen in the bucket, which is right about as quick as we can be. Um, balloon down a little bit. Okay, now their, their blood pressure hits 40, balloon back up, balloon down, balloon back up. The problem with that is you wind up getting these really, um, really impressive peaks and valleys of severe acidosis, hyperlactemia, hyperkalemia. And I, I could, I'll ask Justin to comment on that also because he sees him, he sees us doing that all the time. Okay, hey Justin, take the balloon down. He's like, no, don't do that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we, so there's a bunch of a bunch of ongoing work right now with balloon design um, about changing the, the design of the balloon. To allow, that's one. That's one. There's one that has a that the center is hollow to allow exactly that. Um, I have seen ones that have ridges on the side to allow that. I don't know what they're doing for anti for clotting purposes. So there's a bunch of a lot of interest in the military and in the, and in just the engineering world about making the balloon design better. On that, I I would anticipate within the next six months we'll see a different a very different balloon design. But we do that. I mean, and again, I'll ask Justin to comment on this, but we'll do that where we'll be like, okay, I think I got it. I'm gonna start taking the balloon down. All right, I'm taking out five cc's. And then next thing you know, the blood pressure's 40. Okay, you know, and Justin said, hey, Deb, your blood pressure's 40. I'll be like, well, that's your problem, not mine. And he'll be like, can you please put the balloon back up? I'll be like, okay, fine. Balloon back up, balloon back down, balloon back up. I find when we start getting into that, I've the chances that we have a survivor, I'm gonna tell you, because I think that when you take the balloon down, their subsequent hypertension is as much from hemorrhage as it is from the profound, or as much from the profound shock they get from the reperfusion injury. Yeah, Justin. Yeah. Well, Well, it's not, I mean, you don't, this is a pro, this is beyond the, beyond the topic of this discussion, but I will tell you there's, 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 no, no, it's, it's a very fair point. And I think there's actually, it's actually really interesting what you could do. There are some autonomous systems that they're looking at, the lab in Madigan Army, Army Center in Washington, they're looking at this, um, these autonomous systems whereby, and then actually using plead solution. And actually right before they take the balloon down, giving a little bit of plead solution as a, as a buffer protectant. So there's lots of people who are working on it. Um, and especially the military has a huge interest in what they now call prolonged field care, where they're expecting the next big conflicts will be out in the, um, in the Pacific Ocean somewhere, where transport times will be days, not hours. And how can we get people to survive for longer? So lots of discussion about that. I do want to just briefly get to traumatic brain injury and leave a couple, of time for a couple of minutes for questions. So as a general rule, as I said, brain injury is... Um, brain injury is the leading cause of death, but it, the vast majority of, of deaths from brain injury following, in, following trauma are unfortunately not preventable. So the question is, 
are there is there a patient population in whom you actually can affect change? And I would suggest to you that there are there's one main patient population in whom if you act quickly, you can absolutely unequivocally save somebody's life. And these are patients who typically have unilateral mass lesions. Now you're not a neurosurgeon, I get that. So your ability to do a craniotomy or a craniectomy is limited. But your ability to recognize a patient who is likely to require emergent neurosurgical intervention is essential. So what are the things that make you highly concerned that somebody has a unilateral mass lesion requiring evacuation? Very good, yep. So unequal pupils, right, why? Because you get preferential pressure on one cranial nerve, right, over the other. So you unequal pupils, what we call lateralizing signs. So they're pushing you away with this arm and flexing with this arm or doing nothing with one side and pushing you away with the other. So again, same thing, right? Differential pressure on one of the motor strips from the unilateral mass lesion. And then those patients who have a rapid decline in GCS, right? The talk and die syndrome patients, but the patients who are out um, and were just a little bit confused and now they're unresponsive. Those are the patients that you really, if you recognize that early on and get them to an, inter, to an, to, to an intervention, you can unequivocally save somebody's life. And I can't tell you the number of patients that we've had that were talking in the field, got to us posturing, we got into the operating room super quick and they go home in a day or two. The class ones are gonna be your epidural hematomas. Which would you rather have, an epidural hematoma or a subdural hematoma? Who wants an epidural hematoma? You have to have pick one. Everybody has to pick one. Okay, oh, good, good question. Right? You're in the hospital, you're walking in the ambo bay, you trip and fall, you want epidural, so who wants an epidural hematoma? Who wants a subdural hematoma? Good, very good. All right, so my, my years here have not been wasted, right? Why? So an epidural hematoma is actually not a brain injury at all, right? It's extradural epi, it's outside the dura, right? Classically described as an arterial bleed, typically meningeal, but it can be, yeah, you actually have venous epidurals. It's outside the brain. As long as you, get, you are near a hospital and you get to medical care, you evacuate your epidural hematoma, you go home the next day. A subdural hematoma, the classic teaching is tearing or bridging veins, whatever that means. But it's shear forces applied across the brain that typically cause subdural hematomas. That same shear force that caused your hematoma also got applied across your brain tissue and therefore much higher incidence of underlying brain injury. So everybody would much rather have an epidural hematoma, assuming that you get to medical care in a timely fashion. The other patient population with brain injury that I would highly encourage you to pay very close attention to is those patients who are at imminent risk of, of death from their brain injury, meaning they're about to herniate and die. And we're not going to go into management of brain injury. That's obviously much, much beyond the scope of this conversation. But again, those are going to be patients who have rapid decline in GCS, non-reactive pupils, and those patients who are manifesting a Cushing reflex. What's a Cushing reflex? What is it? Okay, what, what's that, what happens first? Always, always, always. Hypertension, why? Elevated intracranial pressure. Your body's attempting to maintain cerebral perfusion in the setting of elevated intracranial pressure. The bradycardia is reflexive to it, right? So when you see a patient who's hypertensive and bradycardic, that's when you will see me leap out of my chair and hurl myself across the TRU and tackle a nurse to the ground who's trying to give atropine. Because what do nurses hate more than anything? Bradycardia, right? I don't know what the problem is, but they also don't like writing down bad numbers. Have you ever noticed that? Like you come in, you're like, my patient looks great. Like, oh no, it's blood pressure, it's been 70 all night. Really? Because you've only documented 110. Well, I'm convinced that they think if they write down bad numbers, that we feel like they're not doing a job, or they feel like they're not doing a job. Whereas we as doctors love writing down bad numbers. We're like, wow, I'm really smart. 
he's not dead. But anyway, but bradycardia, there's a safe bradycardia, but the setting of bradycardia and hypotension, atropine, 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 right? Spinal cord injury, atropine. Bradycardia and hypertension, what happens if you give that patient atropine? Plus elevated intracranial pressure, you'll make their intracranial pressure worse, they will complete their herniation and die. So you've, you've made things go quicker, that's true. So with those patients, those are the patients who are going to get what I would call the, sick in, the kitchen sink approach to management of intracranial pressure, right? Hyperventilator, mannitol, hypotonic saline, sit them up. Burr hole, decompression, whatever you need to do. Okay. okay. Uh, lastly, I'll make one comment about E because I can, because uh, I'm leaving, so there's nobody to prove me wrong. Um, it, this is the concept of hypothermia, therapeutic hypothermia in, in trauma patients. I, let me rephrase it. The concept of targeted temperature management in, in patients with trauma, right? I hear over and over and over again, we had a patient who arrested for whatever reason, they're a trauma patient, oh, we cannot cool them because they've had, they've had bleeding. This is my own personal, sort of my own personal opinion, but it is actually based on some data. The reason I bring this up, we all recognize that 36 is just as good as 32 to 34, but who's tried to keep a 22-year-old at 36 degrees for any period of time? How'd that go? Really hard to keep a young, healthy kid at 36 degrees. They shiver like crazy. Much easier to drop in the 34 degrees or 33 degrees if you want to induce targeted temperature management of whatever flavor. And we all recognize 32 to 34 is not worse, right? It's just a 36 perfectly fine. So it's really hard to do with young people. But I always get this thing, well, we can't do it because the patient has hemorrhage. So I will tell you that patients who are cold and coagulopathic, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to reverse their coagulopathy without warming them. Patients who are not coagulopathic do not get coagulopathic by making them hypothermic until you get below about 88 degrees which correlates to 31 point something, I believe. Something like that. Right, sorry, I went Fahrenheit to Celsius on you. The point being that just because somebody had a massive transfusion, if they're not profoundly coagulopathic, keeping them at 36 degrees or dropping them to 34 degrees is perfectly fine. If they are coming out of the operating room at 32 degrees and they are bleeding from every orifice, you will never get the coagulopathy reverse if you've not warmed up to normal therm. Does that make sense? So it's just to hemorrhage in the absence of profound coagulopathy is not a contraindication of target temperature management. It's just something I hear all the time. It drives me a little bit nuts. So it doesn't even make sense. It's not even grounded in like actual data. What? Yes. Well, this it's all about this, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that it, there is something very true that we've all, and I have certainly had my share of patients who have bled to death, right? We have watched them bleed to death from coagulopathy, right? They didn't have a surgical source of hemorrhage. There's nothing to put a clamp on, but they absolutely unequivocally bleed to death. That's, that, that's, hard, that's hard to manage. That being said, the most catastrophic, the thing that is absolutely 100% not fixable in 2019 is a dead brain, right? All right, I will stop there. I hope this is remotely helpful for you guys. If not... <laughs> what, what are you gonna do? I know it's like every, every meeting I've been to. I'm like, what are you gonna do? Fire me? That's kind of fun. That's kind of liberating. <laughs> um, but thank you guys. It has been an absolute pleasure. I'm sad every day. I don't want to go, but I will. If anybody has questions, I'm happy to answer.
start addressing definitive care. That's all we're going to talk about here. And <clears throat> when I start with it is what's the, what's the thing that co most commonly kills you after injury? Car hits the tree, what are you most likely to die from? So people usually think it's hemorrhage. Hemorrhage is actually not the leading cause of death following injury. That's the leading cause of potentially preventable death, which is obviously a huge focus. Leading cause of death is actually going to be traumatic brain injury. Um, second leading cause of death is going to be hemorrhagic shock. And then third or hemorrhage. Third is 